Back to the book of Isaiah, I invite your attention with me to the first chapter, and we'll pick up there at verse 21 and finish the chapter this morning. There are stones that we've left unturned, and there's much more that could be said and, and needs to be said from the first of Isaiah, but we have 65 chapters left, so we're going to be uh, bringing the first chapter to a close this morning and moving on. Verses 21 through 31 we'll take up this morning, and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we are reminded freshly again as we open your word of our absolute dependence upon your spirit to come and teach and apply your word to us. For this we pray, our Father, and for this work, painful as it often is, a double-edged sword, your scripture describes itself as um, cutting bone from marrow and dividing soul from spirit, and our Father, may it do its searching work, for without it we are dead. And be glorified in us, we pray, as we hear your voice speaking to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah chapter 1, we begin at verse 21. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, uh, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen, for you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. In C.S. Lewis's celebrated book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis introduces four children from England into the wonderful and adventurous kingdom of Narnia. In Lewis's wonderful imagination in that 
land, Jesus is represented as a lion named Aslan. Some of the first people, so to speak, that the children meet in Narnia are the hospitable Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, talking creatures who welcome the children into their home and teach them about Aslan. In the course of the conversation, little Lucy asks them, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, says Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lewis, of course, lays his finger on one of the great fallen conditions under which we suffer a terribly diminished view of God. This was one of the core problems of our spiritual fathers and mothers in Israel, and so it remains to this day. Sure, we, we sin some, their hearts said. Maybe we don't care for the poor like we should, and yes, we dabble a little bit in our neighbor's religions, but <coughs> hey, God understands. Well, they probably never said so many words exactly like that, but the human heart universally thinks it. Surely God grades on a curve. Isaiah has some other news. God does not grade on a curve. God is not tame. And one should not presume on his goodness, especially when one is dabbling in idolatry and unrepentant sin. These are the things that the church of our day and place desperately, desperately needs to hear and to understand today. The lion has been tamed in our day into charms for necklaces and bracelets, bumper stickers, trinkets and t-shirts and silly Billboards. Simple but genuine grief over sin, confession, and repentance, followed by the true joy of salvation, has been replaced with slogans and with a, a light pop version of Christianity. We have, like our spiritual ancestors before us, we have forgotten that Aslan is a lion. 
Yes, God is good. He is unspeakably good, wonderfully good. But he is also holy, thrice holy, 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 holy. And he is just, and he hates sin with a lethal hatred. He is good. And as the Apostle Paul writes, he is severe. If our faith is going to be true to the Scripture, it's going to have to be true to the whole of Scripture, not just the parts we like, not the parts that make for nice love songs uh, on the radio. Here Isaiah faces us with two realities, both of them extremely weighty, one of them as wonderful as the other is terrible, specifically what you are in sin and what you are in Christ, or what you can be in Christ. We begin where Isaiah does in this section of his prophecy with what you are in sin. And what I mean, of course, is what you are when you indulge sin, whether you are a Christian or not. Though what Isaiah has in mind here, and therefore we with him, is what the church, what Christians are when they give themselves willingly to sin. Three things. First, when the church gives herself over to sin, she becomes a whore. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. Now, this is a particularly powerful expression in Scripture because the Bible so often describes the church as Christ's bride. We, you and, you and I, together form Christ's wife. That's what the church is, according to the Bible. He has married us to himself, and we are one with him. Now think of the young bride in her white dress on the wedding night. Husband and wife begin their way for the honeymoon. But on the way, she says to her husband, stop the car. The neighborhood is, is, is known, this particular neighborhood, for a certain trade, but she insists on stopping, and no sooner does the car stop moving, but she jumps out, drops her white roses on the ground underfoot, throws off her veil, and falls into the arms of the first filthy man to hold out a 20 to her for the night. That's what we are. Brothers and sisters, when we willingly indulge sin, we become whores. We make the bride of Christ into a whore every time we give ourselves willingly over to sin. Sins of all sorts, not just sexual sins, but, but sins of the tongue, gossip, and slander or backbiting, or disrespect, disrespect of parents, sins of the mind, lust, envy, pride, 
hatred, grudge-keeping, and so on. It makes of us rebels, like rebellious wives who, who are not content with their husband's bed. Second, in sin we are also corrupt. Here one commentator notes that Isaiah moves from adultery to adulteration. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Two pictures God gives us to make the point. Silver mixed with dross and wine cut with water. Both of those things are very fine, very precious things when carefully prepared. But with the silversmith, he melts the ore into a molten substance. And, he, and after it becomes molten and the, and the dross rises to the top, he skims it off of the top of the pot. And what is left is pure silver, good for making beautiful jewelry or, or a, a currency to exchange for goods. Now imagine that at that point, the, the silversmith stops, and instead of skimming the dross off the, of the toppy, instead mixes it back into the silver and then pours it into forms to create jewelry. Who would buy such jewelry? Well, no one. It would be ugly jewelry. It would be worthless jewelry, deformed, or wine. Vintners who produce great wines withhold no pains to be sure that the wine is perfect. They watch to make sure that the wine ferments for just the right amount of time. And then that it remains on the lees to draw the flavor from them that is desired, but never too long, not a day too long, lest it draw from the lees the bitterness that is there as well. Then he takes and ages that wine in carefully controlled temperatures so that when it is finished and brought to table, it is perfectly suitable for the feast. Now imagine someone coming along at that point with a pitcher of water and and dumping half a cup of water in every glass of wine. What's happened? It's ruined. It's it's destroyed. And that's what the church becomes when when she, when when we, her, her members, her leaders, according to Isaiah especially, indulge in sin, like like silver mixed with the impurities of the ground, like fine wine cut with water. She makes herself useless, worse than useless, because she started out as something so precious, something so useful and pure and beautiful. So with unrepentant sin, we make ourselves whores, We make ourselves corrupt, like silver with the dross still in it, or wine cut with water. In other words, spiritual adulterers and spiritually adulterated. But worst of all, third, giving ourselves over to sin, we become, brace yourselves here, we become enemies of God. Verse 24, therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, 
the mighty one of Israel. No tame lion here. Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. Enemies of God. That's what we make ourselves. What Christians make themselves when they give themselves willingly to sin. I think that this, brothers and sisters, must be the most terrifying of them all to think that I, that you, can make ourselves enemies of God. Terrifying, I say, because I know from Scripture, and you do, how the enemies of God must fare for their rebellion against him and how they must suffer. That, my friends, is a position in which you do not ever want to place yourself. These are the things that we become when we give ourselves to sin. Adulterers, adulterated, and ultimately enemies of God. Now you can see why it was said a few weeks ago that we should be afraid of sin. The consequences are devastating. Now we we might have expected Isaiah to end right there. He is, after all, addressing a church that was all of those things and more. But he doesn't. He doesn't stop. Actually, God goes on now to describe through Isaiah 2nd what God makes you. If sin makes of you adulterers and adulterated enemies of God, God takes and makes you pure and restored and redeemed. Now, don't fail to catch this because it's exactly the opposite of what we might have expected. We might well and fully have expected God to throw junk silver into the garbage forever. Cast it away for lost, but he doesn't. That's not what God does. Yes, he does turn his hand against them, verse 25, but for a purpose to smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. In other words, rather than throwing away the tainted silver, he puts it back in the smelter. And with powerful cleansing agents, even harsh ones like lye, he first purifies his people. He makes us pure. We're a mixed alloy, are we not, of of sin and righteousness even today. But God is not finished. He has more work to do. He's still working. He's still purifying. He's still removing the dross. In other words, he's still sanctifying you by his grace. Second, he restores you. Verse 26, I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. And third, he redeems. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Redeemed. Redeemed. You you all know what that means, that rich metaphor of our salvation that is used in your Bible from cover to cover. It means to be bought, to be bought at a price. When you redeem something, of course, you know what you're doing. You're, You're buying it. You're purchasing it. When you redeem something at the store, you, you buy it. You make payment for it. Well, how are we 
redeemed? How are we bought? What price was paid to purchase you? Justice. Isaiah says that was the price. Justice. My father, early in his career as a police officer, found out that there are different kinds of justice. Or rather, miscarriages of justice. He had the misfortune of having to place under arrest a fellow police officer for drunk driving. The case came up in court, of course, in Cook County, Illinois, We've all heard something about Illinois politics lately, have we not? But it didn't come up until near the end of the day. After many, as many cases as possible could be heard, it was put off and put off and put off until the courtroom could be cleared of as many people as possible. And finally, at the end of the day, the case was called. And when it was called, the judge looked over at my father and made a motion like this to approach the bench. And my father did. And the judge looked over his reading glasses into my father's face and let loose a string of obscenities at my father and then looked at that man, a friend of the judge as it turns out, and said, case dismissed. The drunk was redeemed. The purchase was paid, likely in cash or in favors. That, my friends, is not how we are redeemed. Zion shall be redeemed, God says, by justice. And those in her who repent by righteousness. And that, of course, is exactly how God has redeemed his people, even you, by justice. God has come to earth and taken human flesh in order justly to pay the purchase price, to redeem you from wrath by his very blood. He himself has paid the penalty of sin. He suffered the terrible wrath of God for it, and in so doing has purchased at a great cost, the greatest of all costs, the satisfaction of divine justice for you. What happened in our case, essentially, is that we, the guilty, were summoned to the bench. And there we expected to be sentenced by the judge. But when we got there, the judge leaned over his bench, and instead of sentencing us, he sentenced himself. I will pay the penalty. Justice will be done, but not by you, by me. I will suffer the sentence. I will purchase your freedom by serving justice on myself. One New Testament scholar writes that no word in the Christian vocabulary deserves to be held more precious than Redeemer. For even uh, more than Savior, it reminds the child of God that his salvation has been purchased at a great and personal cost. 
For the Lord has given himself for our sins in order to deliver us from them. Better yet, as Paul writes to Titus about our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here you have them together again, don't you? Side by side, as in Isaiah. Redemption and purification. Redemption and purification. God is at pains in both of those things for us. That's exactly what he's accomplished. That is what he is continuing to accomplish in his church, even us. Redemption and purification. By the way, that drunken police officer went on to be promoted in the department and became my father's authority. An office, no doubt, redeemed by more political favors. And he also went on driving drunk. He killed two people in a collision in which he was drunk. Another cover-up. His redemption, you see, was not just like yours has been. It was a sham. And sham redemption does not lead to purification. But when God truly redeems, he also goes on to purify. Verse 25, he cleanses you by smelting away your dross and removing your alloy. I don't know whether you've ever witnessed firsthand the smelting process. If you have, you know that it involves intense heat. It is a radical process. It really is, and an amazing one. It requires the heating of some crude ore to incredibly high temperatures until it becomes molten, at which point the impurities rise to the surface and are are removed, leaving pure molten metal underneath. And large smelting operations uh, right around here. It is uncomfortable in the summers, virtually unbearable, to spend a whole lot of time in what is called the pot room because of the heat that blasts from those large uh, vats, pots of molten metal. Workers there must use the utmost care. I suppose that if one were to slip and and fall and put his hand into the pot, he would come up with little more than a stump. Not a comfortable-sounding process, is it? Not to say the least, but this is what God says he does. That is what God does with his people. He chastens them whom he loves. He punishes those whom he receives as sons. Sanctification, the the purification process, the purifying process always involves some degree of pain. It hurts. In Israel's case, it would be captivity in Babylon for 70 years. For us, it will be something else. God knows, and he knows perfectly, what is required to smelt you. 
to purify you. And he will. And he does. And be warned. It may, at times it will be, severe. We are purified, God knows this well, we are purified best and most completely through fire, through affliction. And he will do it. He will bring in his sovereign providence. God will bring days of darkness and grief upon us. Why? Why? Is it because he loves like some devious little child to, to burn worms with his lighter? Because he loves to administer torture to his creatures? No. No, it is because he loves you. And he only wants what's best for you. He never sends an ounce of affliction your way out of caprice. Never. He never places you in the furnace, but that he keeps his own hand immediately on the thermostat. He is smelting you, though it may seem more to you some days like he's crushing you or destroying you. He's only smelting. Remember when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. What shall we say in response to this? But smelt on, O God. Consume my dross, however much fire it takes. And purge me from the alloy of sin. Refine me like gold, like silver. Make me pure. For no matter how severe you may be with me, I know, I know that the Lion of Judah is always 